Hello, and welcome to Revolution 22's teaching podcast. We are a church from the downtown area in Boise, Idaho. Thank you for joining us today and hearing this week's sermon. We pray that God's word will be received and will bear fruit in your life. Amen. You guys can grab your seats. Uh, For those I haven't had the chance to meet, my name is Bren. I have had the joy of serving as one of the elders here for the last almost 12 years. Uh, And today we're in Romans chapter 8, which is arguably by most theologians the one of the best chapters in the entirety of the bible and also the longest chapter in romans and ryan foolishly gave the guy that doesn't know how to stay within time limit on any sermon this text today so um there's no way we're going to finish on time so just hunker in that's the real reason we canceled the barbecue today was because i'm no i'm just kidding um i won't cover it all nor will i do any justice to the chapter that is warranted such deep meditation and time and so my plead my plea to you is as I skip over so many wonderful truths that need to be wrestled through, I would encourage you to, to dig deeper into this, to read it, to study it, to get together as your gospel communities and continue to, to learn from God in this rich text. I will not in any way do it justice. Um, so we all want to be sure of things, guaranteed that something will or won't happen. Um, whether it's a you know, a guarantee on some product you're pur- purchasing, like it won't fail you, or a, a guarantee on a relationship, like maybe some of you young people are like, well, is she the one or is he the one? I don't know. If I would just know, it would work out. We always want that, right? Or if you're going in for a surgery or, or a doctor, you're like, you want kind of a guarantee that it's going to go well. Um, as I was trying to think of a good visual aid for you guys to have for, that would help us understand the idea of guarantee, I, I was reminded of the, I, I believe it's a documentary, a historical um, fiction maybe, uh, of Tommy Boy, when he talks about uh, guarantee, but then I realized it ends with this weird scene about tooth fairies. You, you, if you haven't seen it, it's okay. Most of you millennials and Gen Z are like, what is he talking about? Um, no, so I, I decided I wouldn't go there. But let's put it this way. If you think of it this way, let's say, I, just so you guys know, I've never had any engineering classes at all. But if I came to you and I said, hey, there's this canyon over here. It's a thousand, fall, thousand feet deep. I have engineered a bridge for us to go over it. And I engineered it, and I built it, and let's go. I guarantee you won't fall. I'm willing to bet that most of you, hopefully all of you, would be like, there is no way I'm stepping on that bridge. Because that guarantee means nothing. Because it's not the guarantee itself, it's the person who's making the guarantee. Right? So so maybe if you got the world's best surgeon in the world, and he's like, he's like, hey, I've only ever lost five people on the table. I guarantee I'll do the best I can with you. I know you might believe that more than me with a bridge. However, there's those five you're always thinking about, like, who are they and what what happened there? (laughs) There's always this issue with us of wanting, like, straight, like, just true confirmation that, like, that we can have certainty in things, right? But the issue is always, the problem is never what's being guaranteed. It's who's guaranteeing it and the fact that we are all keenly aware of no matter how much someone wants to guarantee something, there's just too many other things that could come in and mess that up. And we want to, we want to be certain. We want to, we want to, even when it comes to life, we, we all long for certainty in our life. And it, the thing about a guarantee is, is, is only as good as the one giving it. However, what I believe is that the more you believe in the one who's giving it, the more you'll live your life true to it. And this, 
this chapter is just so rich of a chapter, and it's such a wonderful chapter, and I don't have any time to go back and talk about all the other chapters, so I'd encourage you to listen to the podcast, go read them, and, and, and come to it. But I think in this section, Paul is doing what, what I think a really good shepherd would do to, to sheep after having such huge conversation, conversations and teachings about condemnation and justification and sanctification and, and working his way through. He kind of seems to pause in this moment, and in some ways, it's almost like he gets lost in this. Now, not, not lost in the sense of he doesn't know where he's going, but lost in, in the goodness of God as he starts talking about him. It's really, really rich. And I think what he's doing here is, is I, he is he is trying to, I think, help those in Rome and, and by proxy us as well as the church later on to, to have an assurance of what God has done in them. And I mean, you saw it last week as Ryan was talking about Paul and the, why do I do the things I don't want to do? And then it comes into this section. And so as we, as we dig in, it's, it's just wonderful. In fact, one scholar says it this way, and I think it's important for us to zoom out, which is pretty much all we're going to do today because it's all we have time for. But he says it this way. He says, from no condemnation at the beginning to no separation at the end. The chapter passes in review those acts and gifts of God that together give to every Christian the certainty that his, that his or her relationship with God is secure and settled. And so I'm going to try and do nothing but hopefully lean into that today. See, because I, I, I'm certain that many of you look at your own lives and you, you see the, the bags of flesh that you're wearing in front of the mirror and you see what you've done and what you've done again and what you struggle to do and you continue to wrestle. And if you aren't right now, you have in the past or you will at some point start to wrestle and doubt the security and the settledness in your salvation. Because unintentionally, we can too often focus on the wrong things. And so what I want to do through this text today, and I, I plead with, with God to accomplish it, and if not, just get me out of the way and you, he accomplishes it anyways, is that you, if you are here today and you, you, you are in Christ, you are a follower of Jesus, you would leave with a settledness that cannot be shaken or stirred despite what the world throws at it. And if you're here today and you, you don't know what you believe, that you would leave shaken and unsettled, looking for something to put your feet on, to stand on, that will truly be a guarantee that will not pass. Because see, this guarantee that comes to us today is not Paul. It's God, the guarantor of it, and that's why I believe we can believe this with certainty. We don't have to worry about what may or may not happen, and I think that's what Paul's going to dig in. So let's, let's just jump in and, and get going. So verse 1, it says, there is, therefore. So again, you're going to see a million therefores in this section, and it's like he's building on and building on and building on. And most theologians kind of believe that it's not just chapter 7, the therefore, but all the way back to the beginning, at, at the minimum chapter 5, he's trying to kind of like, okay, let's bring it all in here. And he says, therefore, now is no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. This statement should really change the way we live our life, church. No condemnation now. We, we, should, we should hear that and be like, oh, this can help us stay focused on walking out repentance and living our life knowing that there is no condemnation for those who are in Christ. But even as I say that, if you're anything like me, I know it still is a little unsettling. And Paul I think, sees that as well. And so he carries on. This condemnation word is, is not merely a pronouncement of guilt, but also can be like an adjudic- adjudication of punishment. In 5, 16, and 18, Paul talks about the fact that, that we're all condemned because of Adam's transgressions, but that we're all um, justified because of Jesus's actions. And, and we also have to remember, despite, if you want to blame Adam for all your sins, every one of us have sinned as well. We've talked about that. Ryan's covered that very well in chapter 3. 
So it's, it's not a matter of, well, someone else did this. But what he's saying is, look, there's, there's no condemnation. There's no way, if you are in Christ, this term being in Christ, the most simplest way I could come up with it is, it's being recipients of the redeeming and transforming grace of God, made available to humanity through the saving work of his son, Jesus Christ. And so what does Paul say in Romans 8.1? Here he's telling us that we are free from the guilt of sin. There's no condemnation. Why? Because we are in Christ. Not based on anything I've done, anything you're going to do, or anything I will do or, or hope to do. It's based in Christ. I, have, I am free from the guilt of sin. And then Paul builds on this. He goes, he goes wait a second, there's, there's more to it. Romans 8, chapter two, or chapter 8, verses 2 through 4. He says, For the law of the Spirit has, of life has set you free in Christ, in Christ Jesus from the law of sin and death. For God has done what the law weakened by the flesh. Again, Ryan covered this. It's not that the law was weak. It's that the flesh could not walk with the law. So we have weakened it. It can't do it. It, can, it cannot save us. So he says it's done, could not do, by sending his own son in the likeness of sinful flesh and for sin. He condemns sin in the flesh in order that the righteous requirement of the law might be fulfilled in us. Not that we are going to walk out every single thing of the law, but that the overarching, the, to love God and to love others can actually be fulfilled in the collective church now. Because why? Because the spirit who indwells us to do so and to accomplish this. So we, we now know, and then, oh, sorry, who walk not according to the flesh, but according to the Spirit. Again, Paul almost always uses walk as the idea of just as you go, who you are. It's just, just kind of moving in this way. It's, it's the way you live as you walk according to the Spirit. So there is no condemnation. We're free from the guilt of condemnation. And now what Paul is saying, because of the Spirit, we're free from the power of sin as well. So there's no condemnation because not only because of what Christ has done for us, but now because we actually can walk and make decisions not as a slave to sin anymore because we have the power of the Spirit within us. So Paul's building this to try and to, to settle this in the hearts of the, of the church in Rome, and, and by proxy, I believe us, as, as God has re- preserved these words for us. He's trying to settle this idea that, that, that we are, we're, we're, there's no condemnation. Why? Because, well, the power of sin is, is lost on us now because we have the power of the living spirit in us. Um, he says a couple things in here that I just want to kind of highlight. He says this idea of like, well, Jesus came in the likeness of sinful flesh. Some people have really misconstrued, misconstrued that, meaning like he didn't actually have fully flesh or that he had likeness. That's not what's happening here. I think one scholar says it best. He says, it's not in sinful flesh because the flesh of Jesus was sinless, nor in the likeness of flesh because the flesh of Jesus was real but in the likeness of sinful flesh because the flesh of Jesus was both sinless and real. And so it's important to see that, that, that Jesus was fully flesh, but he was also very sinless. And what, what we're seeing here is that because we don't have to worry about it anymore, Jesus condemns sin in his sinless flesh. So the power of sin is, is gone. So those of us that wrestle and struggle, and I understand what I say, they're like, wait a minute, I still feel like sin runs me sometimes. Stay with me. Paul will get to that. See, Christ identified fully with humanity in his incarnation, even to the extent of sharing our sinful flesh. But he did not succumb to the temptations of the flesh and was not guilty of sinful thoughts or acts. And we are freed from that because of what Christ has done in that work. So there's no condemnation for those who are in Christ because we're free from the guilt of sin, (laughs) we're free from the power of sin, 
We have the indwelling Holy Spirit. And, and the, the sin itself, the flesh itself has been condemned. The condemnation is on that from Jesus. It's completed. It's there. There's another way to know that we aren't condemned. Paul is not done. He goes on. This section of scripture, by the way, 19 different times this text talks about the Holy Spirit. This is a, they, like, you could have a lot of fun studying the Holy Spirit. I think like Ryan has done such a wonderful job in the past, a lot of times where, where Paul is teaching. He's not trying to give you like, here is exactly what you need to know about the Holy Spirit, but he's using whatever he possibly can to bring about the truth of what God is doing here. And so right here, it's not about the Holy Spirit. It's that the Holy Spirit's bringing us assurance of settling this, that it is a completed work and we are free from condemnation in Christ. And so I think that's what Paul is doing here. He says, for those, uh, chapter 8, verse 5 through 11, for those who live according to the flesh set their minds on the thing of the flesh, but those who live according to the Spirit set their minds on the things of the Spirit. For to set the mind on the flesh is death, but to set the mind on the Spirit is life and peace. So he's going back and forth and back and forth, right? Showing these two different things. For the mind that is set on the flesh is hostile to God, for it does not submit to God's law. Indeed, it cannot. Now here's, this is important. He's not saying those who struggle and act in a moment of weakness on the flesh. He's saying the mind that is set on the flesh, the mind that is not submitted or surrendered, that is not in Christ, cannot please God. It's important for us to hear that. You are incapable. Anyone who is not a follower of Jesus is incapable of pleasing God because you are living in the flesh. And he goes on to say further, you're hostile. You're in enmity with God. But those who are in the Spirit can please God. He goes on and says here, for those who are in the flesh cannot please God. Verse 9, you, however, are not. So look at how he does it personally. You, church, Rome, hear this. This is not a vague, ambiguous statement. It's to you, you, however. You are not in the flesh, but in the Spirit. If, in fact, it's since, in fact, the Spirit God of God dwells in you, is more the way he's saying it here. Anyone who does not have the Spirit of Christ does not belong to him. You want to know how there's no condemnation? Because you have the Spirit of Christ indwelling in you. That should bring immense assurance. But if Christ is in you, since Christ is in you, although the body is dead because of sin, the Spirit is life because of righteousness. This is, this is the argument that Paul is having in chapter 7 over and over again. Why do I do what I don't want to do? It's this, it's this idea that, that we still are experiencing the, the already but not yet reality. We're longing for the new heavens and the new earth but we have these bags of flesh that we're still trying to take off the old self and put on the new self and continue to walk by the Spirit in this broken world. He goes on and says, if the Spirit of Him who raised Jesus from the dead dwells in you, I love that he goes there. It's not some small thing. If the Spirit, you know, like, you know, fixed a a boo-boo, an owie. No, it's like the Spirit that raised Christ from the dead dwells in you. Like, Like, think about that for a second. That's not a small thing, church. That's not something that should cause us to, 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 to recoil from fear of what the world may bring when we have that spirit indwelling in us. It says, he who raised Christ from the dead, um, he who raised Christ Jesus from the dead will also give life to your mortal bodies through his spirit who dwells in you. What is he talking about here? He goes on and on and on later, and we'll get there in just a second, but he's talking about this idea of the new creation, the new body that we're gonna feel, and I'll, I'll get there in a second. So how, I guess this begs the question, well, how do we have our, know if our minds are set on the spirit of the flesh? If that's an assurance that you and I have is that those who walk according to the flesh are not able to please God, but those who walk there, how, how do we know? Well, Paul gives us a list. 
in Galatians where he's having the almost same conversation with the church of Galatia. He says it in 5, 16 through 24. He says, but I say walk by the Spirit and you will not gratify the desires of the flesh. Do you, you hear that? Like, it's not, he doesn't say do nothing and, the, and the, the flesh will go. He's like, no, 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 no. Live according to walking by the Spirit. Surrender yourself to him and his leading. Walk with him and, and you, you won't. Why? And he goes on to tell you why. Just like Paul was just saying, they are not compatible. They don't work together. He says, for the desires of the flesh are against the spirit and the desires of the spirit are against the flesh. For these are opposed to each other to keep you from doing the things you want to do. Paul chapter seven. But if you are led by the spirit, you are not under the law. Now the works of the flesh are evident, sexual immorality, impurity, sensuality, idolatry, sorcery, enmity, strife, jealousy, fits of rage, rivalries, dissensions, divisions, envy, drunkenness, orgies, and things like these. I warn you, as I warned you before, that those who do such things will not inherit the kingdom of of God. Now hear this. It is not those who have done those things once or may do those things, hear those. It's, It's those who live according to the flesh and give themselves to that. They shall not, will not, cannot inherit the kingdom of God. That's what he's saying. And he goes on and says, but, but the fruit of the Spirit is joy, love, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. Against such things there is no law. And those who belong to Christ Jesus have crucified the flesh with its passions and its desires. And after a verse like that, I'm sure many of us in the room are maybe starting to feel guilt again. (laughs) Or dare I say condemnation. I mean, show of hands, one to ten, how often do you, I'm just going to don't put your hands up. Most of us would say, like, man, I, that, I feel like sometimes I'm on, on the wrong side of those lists. I don't see a lot of patience or peace or gentleness or self-control, but I see a lot of strife and division and dissension and envy and all kinds of things in our life. They, they're, they're both present. And this is, I think the weight of why many of us continue to lose sight of the idea that we can just exhale because it's settled in Christ. There is no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. So we hear that, and then we go back to this list and we go, yeah, but, but. And I think, I think Paul, inspired by the Holy Spirit, brilliantly sees that as well. And, and look where he goes next. And I, and I love what he does next in, in, in verse 12 through 17. He says, so then, brothers, we are debtors not to the flesh. We're not enslaved to the flesh. Ryan has already talked about that. That's not, that's not what we have to serve anymore. Okay? But um, to live according to the flesh. For if you live according to the flesh, you will die. But if by the Spirit you put to death the deeds of the body, you will live. For all who are led by the Spirit of God, and here it is, are sons and daughters of God. Now this, we have to stop on this one for a second, church, because you gotta, you gotta hear that again. And here, the reason why I think this is important for us is that most of us, unfortunately, in this day and age, have a really messed up view of, of fathers. Whether we've had a good one or not, we just, we just have a messed up view of fathers. And so this doesn't ring as, as, as bold and as loud and as true as it probably should in our hearts and our heads when it comes to it. See, because everything that Paul has said so far, there's no condemnation for those who are Christ. It's like, okay, I'm on the team. Yep, I'm a part of it. Cool. I got the Holy Spirit. Yeah, dwelling in me. And like, you could kind of feel like, I'm a, I'm a part of this. But I, I still feel like I'm like, like I have a, I'm, I'm on a team and I, I like, I could not be on the team. What Paul does, he says, no, no, no. Let me, let me make this really clear. You, 
You are a son or daughter of the Most High King. You are a son or daughter of God, the Almighty. That's what it means to be in Christ. It means that you are no longer outside or on the sidelines or on the team. No, no, you have been brought into the home and you have a father in God now. Guys, that's a, that's a big deal. That's a huge deal because I, look, I'm, I am not a perfect father. In fact, I'm very far from it. Every now and then my kids do something to frustrate me. Just, just every now and then. I mean, like once a month or two. I mean, that's it. Every day, probably. But here's, here's the reality. As an imperfect father, I still love the crap out of them. I want the best for them. I want to see them thrive. And I'm a terrible father compared to God. So when God says, when Paul says something like, no, 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 hang on, you are a son or daughter of God, that should ring true to like, oh man, I have the one who created me in my mother's womb is now my dad. And, and Paul sees that and he, he latches onto something that has maybe been overplayed at times, but I think is really important for us to catch. He goes, for you did not receive the spirit of slavery to fall back into fear. You have nothing to fear because you've been adopted into a family, not just invited into a team. Nothing to fear. Why? Because you have received the spirit of adoption as sons by whom we cry, Abba, Father. Look, the only other time that that statement's used of God is Jesus in Mark 14. So what is Paul saying? Because we have been adopted in, we have the same intimate relationship that Jesus Christ does. He's our big brother. He goes on here and says, the Spirit himself bears witness with our spirit. So the Holy Spirit, again, is at work trying to convince and show us that not only are we on the team, but we are children of God. And if children, then guess what? Heirs and heirs of God and fellow heirs with our big brother Jesus, provided we suffer with him in order that we, oh man, it was going really good until that part, right? In order that we may also be glorified with him. But this is, this is really important. In Rome, in adoption, when you were adopted, the entirety of your old life went away. Your debts, your views, your name, everything was gone. It wasn't like you carried on this, I'm adopted here. It was like, nope, it's gone. This is who you are. You now get everything of this family. Everything in the past is gone and null and void and not a part of who you are anymore. And he says, that's who you are. You want to know why you're not condemned? Because you are a son and daughter who can cry, Daddy, to the king of the universe. I don't know about you, but that, that can settle someone really quickly. Like, that's a guarantee I like to hear from someone that is really good at guarantees. You have the Holy Spirit indwelling in you. You have no condemnation because you're free from the, from, the, from the guilt of sin. You're free from the power of sin. Like, you, this is all building on this, right? There's no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. And then he goes in this section where he's like, provided we suffer with him in order that we may also be glorified with him. It's like, oh, this was going so good, Paul. Verse 18 picks up and he says, for I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worth comparing with the glory that is to be revealed to us. Now, if you're ever in a moment of suffering or someone is in a moment of suffering, saying that sentence to him never really makes him feel great, does it? Oh, I'm sorry you lost someone, but don't worry, it won't matter. And that doesn't really feel there. And that's not what Paul's doing here. It's really important for us, church, hear this. Paul's never minimizing the severity of, of Christian suffering. He's just saying no matter how severe it is, it still pales in comparison to the glory that comes in knowing Christ, Jesus. 
There's there's no comparison to the glory that will be revealed to us. He's not minimizing the suffering. In fact, he's saying it, it, it actually means that we are not under condemnation if we are suffering. This is another way for us to know that we are not condemned because we are in Christ and therefore we are suffering with Christ provided we can be glorified with him as well. So Paul's going into this thing and he compares this and he says, for the creation wakes with eager longing for the revealing of the sons of God. For the creation was subjected to fertility, not willingly, not willingly, but because of him who subjected it in hope. This is God. That the creation itself will be set free from its bondage to corruption and obtain the freedom of the glory of the children of God. For we know that the whole creation has been groaning together in the pains of childbirth. Now it's really important that he says pains of childbirth and not pains of death. Because childbirth, there's hope. Still painful, but there's hope. And he goes on and says, until now, and not only the creation, but we ourselves who have the first fruits of the Spirit. This is the, the first fruits were what came in from the crop, igniting and showing us that there were more to come. And he's saying, look, you have the indwelling Holy Spirit now as a first fruit. We still have not experienced the entirety of what the Holy Spirit indwelling in us will look like until we are glorified in our glorified bodies in the glory with our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. He goes on and says, we groan inwardly as we wait eagerly. Now, that word is, those two words are so weak. This is like the best way I can describe it is like a five-year-old holding a present that they're so excited about to open. Like, it's not a a wait eagerly, like, oh, I'm just waiting eagerly. It's like, no, you, you have the hope in your hands and you can't wait to tear into it. And you're so excited and there's nothing that can take it from you. It's a, it's a really big thing. And he says, for adoption as sons, the redemption of our bodies. Now that's the only time redemption is tied to our physical bodies. I think there's one other place that it's used and that's a little bit tricky. But essentially what I think Paul is doing here is pointing again towards the not yet. We're waiting because we already are adopted as sons, but we haven't experienced the full inheritance yet. We have an inheritance of the Holy Spirit and other things, but we haven't experienced the whole inheritance because we're still in this world living in our little kingdoms while the kingdom of God is, is here now, but also ushering into full completion when Jesus returns. He says, for in this we hope we were saved. In this hope we were saved. And the hope that is seen is not hope. If I have it in my hand, I see it. I know it's not hope, but no, we, we hope for what, um, for hope, who hopes for what he sees. But if we hope for what we do not see, we wait for it with patience. Likewise, the Spirit helps us in our weakness. For we do not know what to pray for as we ought, but the Spirit himself intercedes for us with groanings too deep for words. And he who searches our hearts knows that is, is, is the mind of the Spirit because the Spirit intercedes for the saints according to the will of God. Now this section of Scripture has a whole lot of baggage behind it, okay? Many people want to try and make this about speaking in tongues. I don't, I don't think that's at all what Paul's going for. There are plenty of scriptures that talk about the gift in tongues, and, and that's a whole other conversation. I think what Paul's doing here is, again, is trying to remind us how the Holy Spirit is going to help us in showing us that we are saved, revealing to us that we are settled in this. And so what he's saying here is he uses the same term here, creation groans deeply. Well, we groan inwardly. Well, the Holy Spirit groans here. I don't think it's, it's talking about that entirely. It's just saying that somehow that the Holy Spirit is interceding on our behalf in a way that is perfectly aligned to the will of God. So that is enough for me because <laughs> I know that I don't know what to ask. And I think about this. If you're right now living and you're over the age of 40, you've experienced probably some lumps and bruises. 
Have you ever talked to someone that's over the age of 60 or 70? They start losing their taste almost entirely for this world. And they long for the new creation because they see the, the deterioration of their bodies and the, and the, the brokenness on cycle. I, I don't know what to pray for that sometimes. Like sometimes I just pray, Jesus, come now. But like, okay, I do want to like experience this common grace you've given me. Like, I think this is kind of that, that wrestling. Well, I'm suffering. Do I pray for the suffering to go away? But at the same time, the suffering is producing something in me that, that only God can do. So it's this battle that goes back and forth. I think that's really what he's talking about here. He goes on and says in verse 28, and we know that for those who love God, all things work together for good. Now, got to pause there on that one. Again, I don't have a lot of time. But I, I think the best thing to know about this scripture, especially if it comes after just that suffering section, is that this is probably another one of those that doesn't really help someone when they're grieving. Don't worry, it's all going to turn for God's good. Like that doesn't usually comfort them. But what should comfort us here is, is that we may not understand or know what good is or the timing of that good, but that this is a promise from a God who is good and never breaks his promise. So the best I can give you out of this section is that for those who love God, it's not based on us. If we love God enough, this will happen. It's just if you are in Christ, you love God because he first loved, therefore we can love, right? But the best I can give you is, is that is that he is at work, even in our sufferings. Nothing is wasted. No evil will prevail for those who are in Christ. You've you got to hear this. Even if you feel like you are hanging by a thread and you've got no strength left and you feel like everything's going to succumb, you still, if you are in Christ, are standing on a firm foundation in Jesus that has nothing to do with your ability to hang on or not hang on. It's not wasted for those, and he goes on, and this is just a brilliant section, for those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his son in order that he might be the firstborn among many brothers, and those whom he predestined, he also called, and those whom he called, he also justified, and those whom he justified, he also glorified. When I read this text, the thing that sticks out to me is nowhere does it say anything that I do. It doesn't say, and Bren did, and Bren had to do, and Bren did this. It says, no, 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 this is all a work of God. If you want to talk about feeling the weight of being comforted in no condemnation, when you realize it has nothing to do with you and everything to do with him, that is the most freeing thing in the world. Think about it. He's done this work. He's going to complete it. Look at the tense. It's all past tense. It's completed. It's done in Christ. It's done in Christ him. This is a finished work of no condemnation, church. This isn't a, well, that's still out. I don't know. We'll see, Hannah, how it goes. Maybe or maybe not. No, it's, it's completed. It's done. It's finished because it's based on what he has done, not us and our doing. So good, church. No condemnation. Go. Why do, why do, we, why do we still feel condemnation? And maybe this is just me. I still feel it. At times, I still feel like, man, I, I mean, how many times can I do that? Same thing over and over again, and he's still going to forgive me. We still feel that. And I, I want to go to, I used to call it my biblical excuse for doubt, but maybe that's a little bit too strong. But um, I think some of us can feel condemnation, uh, condemnation is because we've, we've judged ourselves. 
we've, we've got some skewed view of what we are or are not to do, or we've allowed the belief of what someone else has spoken over us, maybe someone of power in our life at one point, or someone who's hurt us. Both of those, I, I would encourage you to go read 1 Corinthians 4. Like, Paul's pretty clear, like, we ain't the judge, I can't judge myself, like, only Jesus can, can declare condemnation. So some of it's that, I think, but a lot of us, it's because we doubt. We doubt God. We doubt because we see the reality of our lives lived in comparison to the scriptures that are in front of us, and we see a huge discrepancy. We doubt because we feel like even when we get it right, we're getting it right in pride (laughs) and not in surrender to the Holy Spirit. But we doubt. And I think the reason why most of us doubt is because we have forgotten a very clean and true thing. This is not a promise from someone that will fail us. This is a promise from a God who has never broken his promises, who everything he said would come to fruition has come to fruition. He's not missed one. But I don't want to leave you here feeling your doubt, so I want to go to our biblical excuse of doubt. Um, let's look at Matthew chapter 11, verses 2 through 6 right now. This is John the Baptist late in his life. He's imprisoned because he confronted uh, a, a unhealthy relationship with a, with a leader, and he's in prison trying to figure out, like, why does life suck? Um, and now when John heard in prison about the deeds of Christ, he sent word by his disciples and said to him, are you the one who has come, who is to come, or shall we look for another? Now, it's important to see this. This is John the Baptist, like Nazarite John, okay? Like, lived out in the woods, ate vegan or bugs and honey, depending upon how you read that, right? Like, like he was committed to being the forerunner to the Messiah. This is the same John that was like, said things like, oh no, Jesus must increase, I must decrease. This is the same John that, that's sitting in that river, baptizing Jesus, sees the heavens open up and the, Lord, the, the Holy Spirit descend on Jesus like a dove and hears God proclaim, this is my son whom I'm well pleased. Like, I don't know about you, but I feel like that would settle it for me. Same John. Years later, life doesn't look like he was expecting it to because I think he expected the Messiah to come in and crush Rome like many people did. But all over, we see him doubting and doubting and doubting and doubting. But here's what John the Baptist does that I want all of us to be encouraged to do. While he's sitting in in prison doubting, he doesn't turn to the world. He doesn't turn to his feelings, although both those can have some kind of help. He doesn't even turn to someone. He just looks to one of his disciples and says, please go ask Jesus. He goes to to the Lord. And what does Jesus do? I love the answer here. This this text doesn't show it really great. You see it in in the other um, gospel accounts, but like, are you the one to come? He says, go and tell John what you hear and see. Okay, so, so what I picture is, is the disciples of John show up to Jesus and they ask him this question and Jesus is like, ah, come here, let me show you some stuff. And he goes around and starts doing all of these things. He says, tell them what you hear and see, not what I've told you. Tell them what you hear and see. The blind receive their sight and the lame walk, lepers are cleansed and the deaf hear and the dead are raised up and the, power, and the poor have good news preached to them and blessed is the one who is not offended by me. See, what does Jesus do? He doesn't look at him and go, well, darn you, John, how dare you doubt? No. We serve a God that doesn't break a bruised weed, bruised, bruised reed. He hears our pleas for help and is patient with our doubts. He doesn't condemn us because there is no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. He's paid completely for any sin that is exposed in our pain, church. 
He does not always answer in the timing we desire, nor is it the, the resolution or the deliverance that we'd hope for, but his grace will always be sufficient for those who trust in him. The hope we taste and the promises we trust will often be the sweetest things we experience in this age, church. And his reward will be beyond our imagination. So those of us in Christ Jesus, God is completely satisfied in you. Hear this, please. He is, he is completely satisfied in you. He, his love for you cannot, will not, has not changed despite what you do or don't do if you are in Christ because it's not based on you. It's based on what he has done through Jesus Christ and his finished work on the cross and his resurrection. He loves you and there's nothing you will do, nothing you will do that will change that at all because it's not based on your efforts. And yet, why is this so hard to let it sink in for us? Why do we doubt this so often? Why does it feel like so often we self-sabotage this truth? I think that's where Paul goes next. And we're going to do something a little different here at the ending. In the next section of Scripture, there's, it breaks up in two parts. The first part is Paul's concerned with the impossibility of any charge against the believer being sustained before God. It's like, it's impossible. And the second section is the impossibility of anything separating us from God's love. Like, there's no way to do it. Paul sees no possible shadow of doubt in either of those things. So there's, there's no way this can happen. This is not a passing whim. And so what we're going to do here is I'm going gonna, I'm gonna, I'm gonna to read this last section of Scripture out loud to you. But before we do, before we get to everyone gets crazy here, I, I want to I do it in a way where you don't hear it as if it's me. I'm not going to change my voice. Don't worry. But I don't want you to hear it as me, and I don't even want you to hear it as Paul writing it. I want you to hear it as God speaking it to you. Because here, here's the thing, guys. You will live your life differently the more settled you are on this. Today will be different. Doesn't mean you'll be perfect, no. But you'll live more confident, with less fear, more excited, more joy, despite what this world throws at you. And when you doubt, don't go to the world. Go to the Lord. And so what I'm going to do is I'm going to read this scripture. We're going to take communion, but you don't need to get up for communion. We're going to pass it to you. If you are a follower of Jesus, I would encourage you to partake of that. If you're here today and you... You aren't in Christ, then I hope and pray that you're unsettled. <laughs> I hope that you're, you're uncomfortable in that. If you are here and you are in Christ, you've declared that Jesus is Lord, then I hope you are so settled that you've never been more calm and at peace than you've ever experienced in your life because that's what this truth should bring to us. And I think Paul gets lost. And this is why I said this earlier on. I think Paul gets lost. He's trying to He's trying to help the church in Rome. Like, just, just understand this. I know I've been saying all sorts of stuff and it's like lots of truth and there's so many confusing things to understand. But what I really want you to grasp here is, is what, what, what this really ultimately means for you. If there's no condemnation, you're free from the guilt of sin. You're free from the power of sin. You have the indwelling spirit confirming that you are not condemned. You can now see the truth that you're suffering with Christ knowing that you've aligned yourself with him and you're not condemned. You're a son and daughter of the Most High King. Obviously, you're not condemned. And now you have the power to know that ultimately every single thing of your standing had nothing to do with you but him. So then it's the most guaranteed thing of all. And Paul loses himself here. So I would encourage you, if you need to, close your eyes or stand up or, or kneel, whatever you need to do, not because anything I'm going to say is powerful, but because these are the words of the Lord retained and, and preserved for you to hear today. 
and I hope that they just sink in a spot and they hit your soul in a way that, that no evil, no doubt, no fear will ever succumb these to being washed away out from underneath you again. So let me read this. Romans 8, 31. What then shall we say to these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, how will he not also with him graciously give us all things? Look at that. The greater to the lesser. Giving us all things is so much smaller than giving up his son for us. Who shall bring any charge against God's elect, God's children? It is God who justifies. Who is to condemn? Christ Jesus is the one who died. More than that, who was raised, who is at the right hand of God, who indeed is interceding for us right now. Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall tribulation or distress or persecution or famine or nakedness or danger or sword? No, as it is written, for your sake, we are being killed all the day long. We are regarded as sheep to be slaughtered. No, in all these things, we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. For I am sure that neither death nor life nor angels, nor rulers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth. And now these are my words, no politics or sickness or man or woman or doubts you have or struggles you battle with or fears you have, nor anything in all creation will be able to separate us, separate you, those who are in Christ Jesus, from the love of God in Christ Jesus, our Lord, our Messiah, our Savior, who has given everything for me, for you. Church, let that sink in. Father, forgive me for losing sight of that so often. Oh, thank you that there is not any condemnation for my lack of sight and understanding of that truth right there, God, nor anything else because, not because I hold a position or because I've done enough things right, but because you, God, you alone, will complete all that you have done in me from beginning to end. And it's already been finished and won in Christ. So God, as this church feels um, the weight of sin, would you remind them that there is no power of sin over them anymore? There is no condemnation for when they succumb to that. Would you give us the joy, the boldness, the excitement to surrender ourselves to the Spirit so that we can walk in the fruit of the Spirit? And Father, we thank you. We thank you for, um, for doing everything necessary for me to be able to stand here and know that I have a Father who loves me, who cares about me, and not because of anything I bring to him and not because of anything I will do for him, but entirely because of who he is and what he has done for me through Jesus Christ. We praise you, God. We praise you. May we walk without condemnation, knowing that it has already been set and done and there is no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. It's in his magnificent name we pray. Amen.